When Joe said on Thursday, I thought she said she went to the race course. <laughs> then when she said, oh, Jen was there as well. Wow, well, right. I thought you were supposed to be at the race course. I didn't realize you were down Lingfield Park betting on the horses. Anyway. I might say that. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. The race course. Oh, I love it. Good. Are you well this morning? It's nice to see you all. Welcome. Um, do you believe that the God who, um, who saved us and created all this, do you believe that he is able to provide abundantly for you and me if we look to him? Well, I can stop then now. So I hope you have a good rest of the day. This is what we're going to look at this morning because we're looking at Psalm 65. And I think really that's the, that's the thrust of what the psalmist wants to say. So Psalm 65, let's read another amazing action-packed psalm as we've been doing looking at this series. Psalm 65 says this, Praise awaits you, our God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you chose to bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, like fixing our eyesight. God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders, where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it, you enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges, you soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy. This, this Lord Jesus... We thank you for this, your word, and we thank you for the truth contained within it. And we pray that you will now, by your word, teach us and instruct us, and most importantly, give us faith. Give us faith, Lord. Give us faith for the things that you have for us in our lives, in our day-to-day -day lives, as individuals and as a church. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So this psalm focuses really on three aspects of God's character. It focuses firstly on the fact that he's a redeemer. He's the God of grace. That's the first characteristic we'll look at. Then we're going to look at the fact that he's a, he's a God of might. He's the creator. He's the God of might. Might as in might, not maybe. And he's the provider. He's the God of abundance. And what we see in this psalm is that there is a different setting that the psalmist takes to look at each one. Because the psalmist wants to help us to understand 
these different aspects of God's character and how they relate to our daily lives. And so cleverly, he takes us to a slightly different setting. And as I've said, the question, the statement, if you like, the theme that I see running through this psalm is this. The God who saves us and created and rules over all things is able to provide abundantly for us as we look to him. I loved Joe's testimony there because her testimony was, I was a bit concerned about the wheat, but I looked to God and guess what? God provided for me. It's a fantastic testimony, really, of what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's look at it because it breaks down nicely, this uh, psalm into three chunks. The first four verses we can look at under this heading, the fact that God is the Redeemer. He's the God of grace. And so the setting here is in Zion. We are with God's people. We're in God's city. Okay, that's where you've got to picture yourself. We're in Zion. We're with God's people. We're in God's holy city. And actually, we are right at the center of the city. If we were talking about England now, we'd be talking about London. We'd be talking about, you know, Buckingham Palace. We're right in the center of things. We're in the most important place to God's people because what it says is we are in God's courts, God's house, God's temple. And at this time, all of God's people came to him, like it says in verse 2, because of the problem that they had in verse 3. It said they needed to have their sins forgiven. They were overwhelmed with their sin and with their transgressions. They had fallen short of God and they knew it. That was their biggest problem. And so back in these days that we read about in the Old Testaments under these old covenants, before, of course, Jesus came and brought in the new and the greatest covenant that we get to live in, the people of God went to the temple to worship God. And absolutely central to the worship of God was the sacrificial system. Because as I said, people knew they'd done wrong. They'd offended God. And they were, as the psalm said, overwhelmed by their sins and their transgressions. And so what they did was they took an animal along, one that they owned. It was supposed to be the best and the first without blemish. They took it along. They gave it to the priest. The priest would sacrifice this animal. It would be killed. Blood would be shed. And in that way, God said, their sin could be forgiven. Now, you and I living now, we know that God set up this sacrificial system because one day he was going to send his son, Jesus, who was going to be the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And we all know that in reality, it was that one act of Jesus on the cross that was going to pay for the sins of whoever puts their faith in God. All those lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament through the generations, all those other animals, they were just pointing to the fact that one day, one moment in time, God was going to send his son Jesus, who was the Lamb of God, that he would take away the sin of the world. Like it says in Revelation 5, right at the end of the Bible, as John is seeing that the end, if you like, of all things, it says in Revelation 5 verse 9, They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, talking about Jesus, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God 
persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So this system that God set up, it was just temporary because it was going to, because it pointed to the, to the real sacrifice, the one that was going to be effective to forgive sins which would come when Jesus came. But you know, for the people who we read about in the Old Testament, this was meaningful and genuine. They, they, they wanted to love God and they wanted to serve God and yet they knew that their sin, they'd fallen short of what he wanted. They were aware of that. And yet God had made this amazing way for them to be forgiven so that they could love him and serve him and they could have surety. They could know that their sin was forgiven. So it was meaningful to them. It was a means of grace to them. It was how they got the forgiveness that they didn't deserve for the sin that they'd done. It was how they received that from God. And so it was a, it was a means of grace for them. That when they came with a genuine heart, wanting to love and serve God, but also knowing that they didn't make up, they'd mess things up, they got things wrong. They knew that actually when they came with these animals, that somehow when they offered it with a genuine heart, God looked down and said, your sin is forgiven. It was meaningful to them. I wonder whether sometimes we think of that sacrificial system when we think it's a bit strange. It's a bit macabre. It's a bit bloody. Can you imagine it? I mean, when I think about it, I, I, I kind of I struggle to get my head around it. And yet I believe for God's people at the time, it was amazing. Because somehow they got their sins forgiven. They knew that what they couldn't pay themselves was paid for by something else. And I'm sure they scratched their heads. How can giving a lamb pay for that thing what I did, God? Are you with me? I'm sure they asked as a nation, God, how does this work? A pigeon, a lamb, and a goat? And look at the terrible things that we've done, either corporately or individually. God, this doesn't add up. But God's saying, no, no, it doesn't add up. But that's because I know that one day my son's going to come and he's the real lamb. He's the real sacrifice. So you do it with a genuine heart, with a genuine heart, with amazement. And you know what? It will be effective because I'm going to apply his blood to your life. In the same way that Dale Barlow, when you gave your life 2,000 years to Jesus, I'm going to apply his blood to your life. That's how it works. And it's outrageous, and it doesn't seem fair, but the end result is that God forgives their sin. And it says he blesses them, and he brings them near. The psalmist says he fills them with good things, like it says in verse 4. Chosen, brought in to the family of God. So this first aspect of the character of God that the psalmist wants to highlight is the fact that God is a redeemer. He's the God of grace. He gives people what they don't deserve. What they deserve is punishment. What they deserve is separation. What they deserve is God to ignore them. And what he gives them is good things. He forgives them. He brings them near. He says, come into my house. Come into my courts. You are now my people. He's the God of grace. He's the redeemer. I think, maybe it's just me, but I think it's very easy to forget how amazing our salvation is if you're saved. It's so easy to forget 
I, I, read, I read a bit of the Old Testament, that's one of the stories, a bit of a psalm and a bit of the New Testament every day. That's my daily kind of reading of the word. And I like it because it means I cover the Bible and uh, at the moment I'm reading Revelation. And I was reading Revelation 5, you know, sitting there one morning, coffee, biscuit, you know, normal day, normal person, normal stuff going on in life, right? Sitting there and I read Revelation 5 and then I turn over to Revelation 6 and I start to see what's going to happen at the end of time. And I read in Revelation 6, 12 to 14, how one moment everyone is going to be going around their normal business, their normal day, having Christmas, marrying, eating biscuits, ice creams, whatever, whatever. And then in a moment, God's going to stop it. And it, it describes it. It says there's going to be an earthquake. The sun is going to go black. The moon is going to go blood red. The stars are going to fall and the heavens are going to be rolled up. I stopped eating my biscuit. I put my coffee down. So I realized, God, you're trying to give me a glimpse of how precious my salvation is by showing me what it's going to be like in those last moments. And you know what it says? It says, the next verse, says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, this is all people, who don't know Jesus, it says, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountain. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Anybody who cannot stand before Jesus and... Say, but Jesus, I gave my life to you. Your blood that you shed is effective for me. If you can't do that on the last day, then you will be one who wants the, the mountains to crush you because you don't want to stand before God and the Lamb on that day. That's what it's saying. And I realized how precious, again, my salvation was. Because on that day, I won't be saying to God, gosh, I'm glad that I, um, you know, I was quite clever, and I'm glad I did this. I'm so glad that I did that. I'm so glad that I did that. On that day, I will be standing there and saying, whoa, 14, I gave my life to you, Jesus. I'm saved. That's what I'll be saying. That's what I'll be so grateful for. Everything else will fade away into insignificance. So I, I do, I do want to urge you, don't ever lose sight or understanding of how precious our salvation is. It is the pearl of great price. It is the most important thing that we have. God is our great redeemer. He is a God of grace. And that's where the psalmist starts. He says, remember your salvation. Remember your salvation, right? But then he moves on. And in verse 5 to 8, the setting now changes, and he focuses on God being the creator, the God of might. And so the setting has changed. We're now looking at creation big picture. We're now looking at the ends of the earth, the farthest seas, the mountains, the nations, the whole earth. And in changing the setting to creation, the psalmist is now going to focus on this second aspect of the character of God, namely that he is a God of might. And so he begins in verse 5 by talking about He's the God of awesome deeds. 
He's done some amazing things. And he then highlights three things, if you like, to show us the might, the strength, the power of God. And he starts by talking about, in verse 6, forming the mountains. Now, just, just think with me for a moment. Just picture in your mind the largest mountain that you can think of. Have you got it? Maybe a Mount Everest, right? Mount, maybe it's the north face of the Eiger, right? I don't know, whatever the, the biggest mountain you can think of. Now, understand this. When God made that mountain, it was as if he put his hand into some Play-Doh, fashioned it, and stuck it down again. Everest. The Himalayas. <laughs> the Surrey Hills. You know, whatever it might be. <laughs> it's just like to God, he just like picked it up. The Bible says he measures out the seas in the palm of his hand. Imagine that. Atlantic Ocean. Oh, there it is. Lovely. It's how big God is. And so the psalmist talks about that. The point is that if Mount Everest is so big and strong, how big is the, and strong is the one who made Mount Everest? It's the point. If it's like that, what is he like? And then he goes on to talk about stilling the roaring seas. He's the God who stills the roaring seas. I don't know, like you, I quite like to watch those programs about crab fishermen on the Bering Seas, and they're out there in the waves and the most dangerous job in the world, and the sea's going and the wind's going. And, and even when, like, you know, the, the waves come over, it's freezing as they land. And they've got these massive axes to smash it off. And I mean, when you look at those programs, you think it's a miracle that anyone survives in a little boat bobbing up and down. It's like at any moment, the sea is just going to engulf them. And yet, you know, he says he's the God who steals them. Again, imagine the roughest sea you've ever seen. And God says this, shh. And the, steel, and the sea goes, calm. Yeah, shh. Shh. <laughs> That's what he's like. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about God parting the sea. Oh, just, just move sea. Imagine that. Imagine God standing in Dover and looking across to Calais. Part sea and the sea going, you all walk through. Jesus, I mean, Jesus did one better. He just, he just walked on it. He just walked on it. It's nothing. Spoke to it. Psalmist is trying to get us to understand the things that seem like the biggest ups and downs to us. Oh, whoever could control the sea. God just steals it with a, with a word. He goes on to talk about the turmoil of the nations. God bringing order to the turmoil of the nations. And of course, nations and individuals are in turmoil because they turn their back on God. I, I read this quote the other day, and it just showed me again how stubborn men and women are who don't want to believe in God. This is a guy called George Wald, spelt W-A-L-D. He's a Nobel winner in biology, and he's a professor of biology at Harvard. Okay? So he's top guy. Professor at Harvard, and we've given him the Nobel Prize. Right? We think you are top man. Okay? This is what he said. There are only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution, which I'll just shorten in future to evolution, right? 
There's two possibilities. One is that somehow spontaneously stuff just started to happen and it led to evolution. So that's one option. He says, or the other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Right? This guy's not a Christian. It's either evolution somehow or it's God. No third possibility. He says, evolution, the life arose from non-living matter, was scientifically disproved 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. He's saying, as a scientist, that is completely impossible. It gets worse. <laughs> that leaves us with only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a creative act of God. Right? Now, you imagine what his next line is going to be this. Therefore, I am going to search for the God and find him. Listen to this. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, evolution. And we make him a professor at our top universities and give him the Nobel Peace Prize. You see, that is what, that's the turmoil that is in individuals and in nations. Individuals, nations, whole groups of people, millions and millions of people who at times in history seem invincible. They're absolutely opposed to God. They are in turmoil as the Bible describes it. And yet what we see is God brings individuals and nations to heal. He speaks to them. He brings them back to earth with a bump and he opens up the gospel. Think about the mighty Roman Empire that ruled the world. But you know what? When it crumbled, they realized they'd just been road builders for God. That's all they were. They were just road builders. They just built the roads that God sent his gospel down. The Caesars thought they were gods. They were just workmen building some roads for him. Think about the mighty communist empires in Europe and Asia that built up a wall to divide Europe or declared in their government building, God is dead. Well, the wall is now gone. And in the country where it was declared that God was dead, there are more people coming to faith than anywhere else in the world. Because he's a God of might. So the second aspect of his character, the psalmist highlights, is the fact that the one who saved us, redeemed us, he's also a God of might. And that's not just displayed in what he made, but in fact that he rules over it. That no matter how big or wild or in turmoil it appears to us, eventually he will use it all for his kingdom plan. Hard for us to believe that. It's why reading our Bibles and history is so important. Because we look ahead and think it will never change. But the people, in, when we read the stories in the Bible, they thought it would never change. They thought this will never change. We're in slavery. It's never going to change. But we read the story. God did something. It changed. I look at this nation, I think it will never change. We're going too far down the slippery slope, God. And then God slaps me. Read your Bible. Oh, yeah, look, they didn't think it would change. Oh, it's all changed. <laughs> the disciples are in despair. Jesus is dead. It's gone. It won't change. Oh, there's Jesus. I can't believe it. It's all changed. I have to, I have to slap myself. I have to realize, no, no, just because I don't see how it's going to change doesn't mean it will change. Because, God, you've shown us how the end's going to be. You will bring in every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. No, no, it will change. I wonder 
if there are mountains in your life, let me tell you, and we sang it this morning, if there are mountains in your life, big, huge, scary, unmovable things, God can either take you over them or he can level them down to the floor. No, I'll say it again because you don't quite believe it. If there are mountains, I am now speaking a word of faith. If there are mountains in your life, big, scary things that you can't get over or, or see a way of bringing them down, let me tell you this, God can get you over or he can bring the mountain down. He can. If you feel like you're trapped in the roaring sea and you're going up and down and up and down and up and down and you feel sick, God can say a word and it can be stilled in a moment. If there's turmoil, some area of turmoil at home, in relationship, at work, wherever it may be, in your mind, in your heart about something, if there is turmoil, you know, look to God and he can bring peace. Because all turmoil begins in us not believing in God and who he is. That's where it starts. So he can do that. So second thing about him, he is a God of might. Let me move on, because the psalmist then says, okay, you understand he's the God who saves you, he's a God of grace. You understand he's the creator, he's the God of might. And now he's going to bring those two together and say, this is how it applies into your daily life. Because the setting now changes, and it's like we're now in nature, because now we start to talk in the, in the final uh, three or four verses we start to talk about land and water and streams and fields and grasslands and meadows and hills. And the focus is on what they produce, which is crops and grains, basically food, and not just a little food, but an abundance of food. There's this picture of a cart going down the road, and it's kind of food flowing out of it. It's overflowing with it. And it says here in verse 9 that God makes all this happen to provide the people with grain, because that's how he's ordained it. See, the third aspect of the character of God that the psalmist is focusing on is that he is a provider. He is the God of abundance. And let me just make three points that it's easy to miss. The first one is that it is God who provides. He has ordained it, it says to provide people with grain, for you have ordained it so. He has created it. He makes it work together. He supplies the water. He supplies everything that makes the crops grow. He provides because part of God's character, his nature, who he is in essence, is as a provider. That's who God is, right? It's one of the names of God he is a provider. If you cut God in half, which you can't because he's spirit, but in my picture, if you cut him in half, one of the words that runs through him, like a stick of rock has those names running through it, is provider. That is one aspect of who God is. So listen to this. Secondly, he provides all of it for us. For us, for you and me, for men and women. It says to provide people with. See, because part of God's character is to provide he made us as those needing to be provided for. I'll just repeat that because it's so uh, profound, but it's so easy to miss if you're simple like me. Because he is the God who loves to provide, he made us as human beings as being those who need to be provided for. 
We're people created by God, by a God who loves to give. And even though people try hard, and some try really hard to live their lives, never receiving anything from God. We need to receive from God. We need to receive love from God. We need to receive wisdom, strength, guidance from God. It's not a design flaw in us. It's not a weakness in us. It's how God made things to be. Because at heart, he's a provider, and so he makes things that need to be provided for. Are you with me? Some people, you know, I don't want anything from God. I I want to do life on my own. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. That's pride. That's foolishness. Because God made men and women needing us to need him because his heart of generosity and provision is there. And so thirdly, it says, therefore, putting those two things together, it says he provides abundantly. The language used in this psalm, it's about things being enriched, being filled, bounty, carts overflowing, meadows covered with flocks. The whole language of it is there's enough, there's plenty, there's more than enough. So the sense is that God, because he's a provider, he's not just going to make enough for people to scrape by. He's he's not a God who says, oh, well, you're going out, you're going to be away for a day. All right, I'll give you um, one piece of ham and two bits of bread and uh, and kind of budget crisps. That's it, you know. I'm just going to give you the minimum that you need to get by. No, no, because he's a God who provides, actually, he's going to give abundantly. More than we need. In fact, he's going to give us more than we need so that we can have some to bless others with. Because that's what the word abundance and overflow means. It means you have too much and you can't contain it. It's got to flow out, like the picture of the cart going along the road. It has all it has. Things have to be spilled out because it can't contain any more. And the reason God gives abundantly is because he's generous. His love bubbles out. It overflows. His kindness overflows. Because he's a God who provides. So he's got plenty himself and it has to overflow. And it overflows to us. But the idea is not that we are then greedy or selfish. We don't take what overflows from God and say, oh, we'll store that away just in case we get a rainy day. God wants to pour out abundantly to us and give us the more so that we have enough for what we need, but also we've got enough that we might be able to bless others that we might be able to have enough for ourselves but make a difference to the lives of those people around us. That's why God gives us the more. It's not so we can be wasteful or greedy. It's not so we can hoard away. It's not so we can be selfish. It is so that we can recognize, God, you've given enough for me and you've given me more and from that more I'm going to give away and I'm going to bless other people. I'm going to bless people in the church. I'm going to bless people outside of the church who don't know you. God, you're making us generous like you are generous. Because generosity must mean that actually we pour out, we give away. That's why I love this psalm on a gift day like today. We're coming to bring our offerings to God. There's something there of recognizing, God, you've given us all this. You've given us salvation. You've given us our very lives. You're in control of everything. God, you're trying to now make us generous. 
You give us more than enough because you want us to overflow because things overflow from you into our lives. How much do we need to have an abundance? I was wondering, I was just thinking this through. How much do we need to have an abundance? How many coats do we need to have an abundance of coats? You know I'm simple. I break everything down to the simplest. How many co- Do I need as many coats as Marks and Spencers to have an abundance of coats? Do I need enough coats to give every person in the whole world a coat? No. Surely if I have two coats, one for myself and one to give away, if God brings someone across my path and then says, give that person your coat, then surely I have an abundance of coats with two coats. See, my definition of abundance is to have enough for myself and something to give away as God directs. And when that happens, as we see in the psalm here, it says there is joy, there is singing, there is gladness because God has overflowed with what people need and he's given them abundance that they might overflow out with generosity. And here we know the psalmist is talking about an abundance of food and physical stuff that God provides. But you know, this principle works with non-physical things. So often in the Old Testament, things that are physical, we understand in the New Testament as being spiritual. So of course God can provide enough food, but he also wants to provide love and guidance and strength and all those other things, peace and patience and joy. And it's the same principle. God wants to provide us with an abundance of those things. And so we will not only genuinely have enough, We won't necessarily have everything that we want, but we will have enough of the stuff that God knows that we need. There's a massive difference. I need a car to get from A to B, but I don't need to go there in a Lamborghini. God will will look after me for the car, right? He may not not choose the make and model that I want. Are you with me? It's not about me having everything, everything that I could ever want. Plenty is about having everything that I need from God, and abundance is about having everything I need from God and enough to pour out for somebody else. Are you with me? To bless them. Otherwise, it's called greed, and God doesn't like greed. He doesn't do greed because he's not a greedy God. If he was, he wouldn't have given his son to die for us. We wouldn't be having this conversation. See, I do believe God wants us to have plenty ourselves, because I do believe that we are called to bless others. And do you know what? There is a whole millions of people out there who are trying to get through life, and they don't know the God of redemption, or the God of might, or the God of provision. They don't know him. And actually, we as a church and as individuals, God wants us to have what we need and then overflow to them just like he wants us to overflow to our brothers and sisters in church. He wants us to be generous. He wants us to be abundant like he's abundant. But it's not so that we can sit back and say, wow, I have a million pounds and three Ferraris in the garage. I'm all right, Jack. It is so that we have what we need from him and can bless others and can say to them, do you know what? We only have enough for ourselves and to bless you because we look to God. Are you with me? Because we look to him, that's how we have what we need. So we point people to him. I haven't got time for any of that. 
or that, or that. So I'm going to say none of it. But I do want to say this. I was asking God, because uh, I believe all this passionately, and I've seen, I've seen God do all these things in my life. And yet sometimes, and in some areas of life, no problem, God, I have enough for myself, plenty for myself, and to bless others. And yet in some areas of my life, or sometimes in my life, I, it feels like I don't have enough for myself, and I have nothing to give away to others. Does anybody ever feel like that? Sometimes, so I was just talking to God about that. And he took me to a story uh, in uh, 2 Kings 1 of a captain of a guard who was told by the king to go and tell Elijah, the man of God, to come down. And you can read the story, but basically two captains of the guard and a hundred men got toasted by God because they disobeyed what God said. They obeyed the king and they disobeyed God. And the king was disobeying God. Right? This third captain of the guard, he gets told by this wicked king to go and do this, to go and tell Elijah to come down. And this captain of the guard, he thinks, I'm not going to do that because there's 102 men toasted around me. I don't want to end up like that. And he humbles himself and he pleads for mercy. He pleads that his life and the life of his men would be spared. And God spares his life and the life of his men. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. And when I was thinking about God, what is the key to having you provide for the things that I need in my life? Which sometimes I feel like you do, and sometimes I'm not too sure. And sometimes I feel like I've got enough to overflow, and sometimes I don't. Lord, what's the key? I, I felt God take me to this captain of the guard. And what he did was... He, he, he was humble before God in the face of a terrible situation. Because if he, if he says to Elijah, come down, he, him and his men are going to be killed. And if he doesn't say, Elijah, come down, he's going to go back to the king. The king's going to lop his head off. So he's in a difficult place. He's in a difficult place. But what he does is he humbles himself and he cries out for mercy that God would spare his life and spare the life of his men. And he puts his trust that that God would look after him. That, that God would somehow sort out the king so he didn't lose his head. And I think humility and faith are the two keys to seeing more of God's working in our lives. That's what I felt God say. So I want to encourage you, as we spoke about earlier, if there are mountains that you can't get over or you know need to come down before God, the answer is humility and faith. In your humility, look to God and then step out in faith, do what he says. If there are things that are making you go up and down and feeling sick, it feels like you're on that kind of boat, you can't still the storms. Can I say, be humble and cry out to God and then step out in faith and do what he says. And if there's any area of turmoil in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your university, can I encourage you? In your humility, cry out to God. 
cry out to God, and then step out in faith and do what he says. Thank you. I'm finished. Thanks, Tim.